Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all, even if it's virtual this morning. Uh, it's crazy to think that the last three Sundays now, back to back, we've had so much snow accumulating over and over again, and even a lot of ice over this past weekend that just built up and has left us now with a place where the roads just seem to be uh, fairly unsafe to travel on. And so even though we, of course, desire to meet up together in person for worship every Sunday, uh, it's times like these where we realize that um, sometimes the, the tough decision has to be made to uh, prioritize our safety. Um, and so unfortunately, though, we're not able to meet this morning. We are able to find ourselves still able to gather around through the use of technology, through the different means of communication that we do have that God's given us uh, to be able to gather together with our families and people that we're with and gathered around um, to at least gather at a distance. Um, I know it will never replace uh, being together. And it's certainly not something that we ever want to uh, create as a habit, especially going forward in this new season of our church's life. Um, but just given the, the oddity that is the ice outside on our roads this very morning, uh, we figured it would be wise to go ahead and, and play it safe and uh, even just cancel this morning's worship service. Um, however, thankfully, we're able to, again, gather together at a distance. And so uh, I would love to be able to, at the very least, um, share from the very word of God this morning uh, the message that um, I have been writing with you in mind. And I'm just excited to be able to give it to us this morning, even though it's uh in sort of a weird way, you know, again, through YouTube or even through the website, if you're listening through that avenue. Um, but regardless, we find ourselves in a place of just coming together for the purpose of worship, uh, for the purpose of glorifying our God who made us, who saved us, who called him, who called us rather to himself. And so I would love to invite you, even at a distance here, even um and maybe a little bit of the awkwardness of listening in on this recording, to yet still come to the very word of God together. Um, and my prayer is that as we stay safe, as we are um, gathered individually, or even again with your families, that as the word of God is given, and as we tune in from a distance all across Culpeper and beyond, um, that we would find ourselves in a place of awe, and a place of real worship, in spite of these circumstances. And so uh, this morning, just transitioning to our, our message itself, uh, we're going to find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2. See, last week we began a new series on the first letter of John to the church. And as I had mentioned prior, I find this to be an exciting start for the life of our church together as the body of Christ here in Culpeper. To begin this new series entitled Household Theology, a series for a continuing church. Uh, as a church plant that is continuing to build upon the good work, the gospel ministry that had already begun years ago and was accomplished even here in Culpeper through Christ's covenant, we are indeed here in the year 2021 continuing to grow together as a church. And so what better way to begin this new season of our church's life then with a series that helps us to really refocus our mission as a church plant, uh, then a series that is uh, in regard to our identity itself as a household. See, our identity here at Christ's Covenant is that we are rooted in Christ Jesus, ultimately. 
who is our Lord, and so we are a part of his family, the very household of God. So as we continue on in our series in 1 John itself, now arriving here in chapter 2 of 1 John, I'm sure you'll notice as you begin to look at this text uh, just how lengthy this chapter is, especially when we compare it to last Sunday's chapter, this mercifully, chap- or this mercifully short chapter of uh, 1 John 1, which is only about 10 uh, verses in total. This one seems a lot longer in content, and it really is. Uh, and so I figured uh, instead of spending hours and hours and hours unpacking 1 John 2, which we certainly could do, I figured I would spare us that this very morning as we approach this text in a really an intentionally more simple way. See, this chapter itself is very easy to actually summarize as long as we understand the flow of John's thought throughout the passage itself. See, to use an analogy, just like a snowfall, even a snowfall that we might have just experienced recently ourselves, but just like a snowfall that comes down upon us, all around us, and seems to just kind of unify everything that is otherwise unrelated. Houses, fields, trees, cars, everything outside, all under a glistening white blanket of snow. This passage in John 2 is made simple and very straightforward when we understand its unifying theme. So what is its theme? Well, its theme is that we as God's people would take heart, even in the midst of opposition. See, this passage of 1 John 2, 1 through 29, the whole of it, is one really of comfort. Comfort that is to be had by resting in the authority of Christ over all things. And so at this time, I would love to invite you to turn with me to 1 John 2, starting in verse 1. Because at this time, as we read carefully what the Lord has for us this morning, I would love to draw our attention to what God himself would love for us to hear. No matter where we're coming from, no matter where we are, um, the house that we are at, as we sit down in comfort and listen to this, or maybe on the go even, wherever we are, as we approach God's word, we can recognize that God by his spirit will indeed use his word as it is preached and as it is read over us to accomplish what it is set out to do. And so with that very thing in mind, knowing that God's word is powerful and life-giving, forever faithful and true, I would invite you to, wherever you might be right now this very morning, to approach the word of God as such, and to now even listen to the text of 1 John 2, 1 through 29, as it tells us the very following. So let's together uh, tune our attention to the reading of God's word from 1 John 2, 1 and following. The word of God says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is now the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Now I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
Well, this is the very word of God, my friends. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are gathered at a distance yet again this morning because of the snow, the ice outside on the roads, we recognize that it is you who is Lord, you who is the shepherd of your sheep, you who are the pastor over Christ's covenant, the high priest, the true shepherd over us. And so, Father, we thank you that as we gather at a distance It is you who is our shepherd, even in person, by your very spirit, ministering to us through the very text of your word given to us in love. So though we cannot gather this very morning together under the same roof and worship together through song and through praising you as one family, one body of Christ gathered together, we are thankful that even though we are separated this morning, due to the um, uh, unsafety of of not being able to uh, gather properly. God, we thank you that in spite of these things, you have called us to yet worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, God, we ask that you would use this time to just remind us of your faithfulness, to remind us of your care and your tender love toward us, even as we're not able to meet. And so we ask for your blessing upon this time that even as we tune in from a distance and listen in, that you would yet use this time, oh God, to strengthen our hearts, to enliven our faith, and to give us uh, eyes that would see you, minds that would be cognizant of your ways, and hearts that are just met with delight, delight in the gospel and nothing less this very morning. So Jesus, we thank you for being the one who is with us until the very end of the age. And we pray all this in your holy and mighty name. Amen. Well, friends, before we uh, dive more deeply into the text of 1 John 2 this very morning, I wanted to provide a uh, brief recap of our message from last Sunday. Uh, For I know that not all of us were able to make it uh, due to this snow as well. Go figure. Now, last week, I explained that 1 John itself is written in such a way that it is both polemic and pastoral, both offering an argument along with a message of comfort. Last week in chapter 1 in particular, we saw John express his chief concern for the church that he had in mind, uh, quite possibly the church of Ephesus or some other church that he had shepherded along the way that they would not only receive Christ, the very word of life, but also so walk with Christ and therefore believe the gospel message concerning Christ. And as they would both receive and believe Christ himself, then their joy would be made more and more complete. See, through a simple childlike faith, then we saw a starting point for us as the family of God. If we ourselves desire to have communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and have a healthy fellowship with both him and one another, we do well to start with his instruction. We must live daily, in other words, in that conscious possession of eternal life that I mentioned last week. 
So here in chapter two, continuing forward in our series, Household Theology, John continues this idea of living in light of the gospel of Christ. And it's here that he introduces a sort of big idea for his readers, especially this big idea that we saw earlier in our reading of verses 12 through 14. See, the big idea is that of comfort, that as the family of God, we have comfort by the author of our salvation himself, come whatever may. And that comfort is bound up in these three verses And it ties the entire chapter together and helps us safeguard our understanding of what has been written. But what is interesting to note is that the literary device that John uses to help drive us uh, to this comfort is very unique. For those of you who enjoy literature and poetry in particular, You might especially appreciate this literary device that John uses in chapter two. And what John uses in particular is known as a chiasm or a chiasmus. See, a chiasm is a way of designing language so that both the introduction of an idea and its conclusion or its uh, way of ending itself end up mirroring each other as you take the entirety Uh, together as a whole. And so accordingly, the first point that is made here in chapter two mirrors or lines up with the very last point made toward the end of our chapter. And so following the second point that is made, starting in verse seven and following a little later, ends up mirroring and doubling over with the second to last point uh, from verses 15 down to 17, for instance. And all of this leads to the middle point or the center of the passage in order to emphasize its centrality, the impact that it leaves, so informing the rest of the passage. And so John uses this uh, tactic, this poetic tactic of all things, as we then approach this chapter. Because in doing this chiasm and in structuring his thought in this way, leading from the first point to the second to the middle, and then backtracking to a form of the second back to the first, he leads us to this place of emphasis upon the center itself. Now, specifically, again, you'll notice that in this first section, we see Christ as the advocate, coupled with a warning concerning the Antichrist in verses 18 and following. So again, we see the idea of Christ versus the Antichrist, the antithesis of Christ, the first part of the chapter and the last part. The second point starts in verses 7, and it goes down to verse 11. And that part has everything to do with a command to love properly. And it's right there again in those verses, verses 7 through 11. And that's coupled with another form of a command, a command, though, that is to not love the world, a command to love properly in verses 7 through 11 with the command to not love improperly in verses 15 through 17. And so the center then we find to be the convergence of these two ideas, Christ and true love versus the antichrist and false love. And they meet themselves together right here in the center, verses 12 through 14, the convergence of these two ideas. And so while we will return to the centerpiece a little later in our in our message, 
I'd like for us to, just as John did, to build up to this point by going back to the beginning of 1 John 2, 1, now that we have a better understanding of the passage itself. So here again, the words of 1 John 2, verse 1. He says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, when you hear these words, what kind of tone of voice do you picture John using here? See, knowing that he was a pastor and one who had known Jesus personally, I cannot imagine that his tone was anything but comforting and tender. And yet, for as much as there was a softness to this message, you know, of following Christ, of receiving him, of loving in accordance with his law, there was also very much a sense of warning, a sober tone in his voice, if you will. See, this church was being infiltrated by lies and deception regarding the person and work of Jesus himself. Lies that called into question not only his deity, who he was, but also the sinfulness of mankind. And so in light of John's insistence upon both of these core truths to Christianity, both Jesus as Savior, God become man, and us as being fallen image bearers of God himself, uh, we see John insist upon these truths. Again, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and furthermore, that His blood alone can cleanse sinners from their sin. And so he reiterated that true, heartfelt reception of this truth. Um, He reiterated that this reception of it ought to properly lead God's people to a place of no longer sinning. You know, as he says again, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But we realize that even when our lives are lived in light of the glory of God and are humbled by his sheer kindness in Christ, shown to us undeserving rebels, we cannot help but then desire to please him and to so walk in accordance with his ways. And yet all the while, if we are honest with ourselves, we feel this resistance within our own flesh, within our bodies, toward God, deep within our souls even, As believers, I mean, how often do the desires of this world seem to eclipse the glory of God before our very eyes? How easy is it for us to turn aside from doing the good which our God has joyfully commanded us in favor of forging our own path forward in life? Well, because we are still sinners here in this life, the law of God is can often feel like arbitrary limitations imposed upon us, especially when we compare the restrictions of God's law upon us in comparison to the perceived freedom or liberties of unbelievers who engage in all sorts of lust-filled, self-driven behaviors. And yet, our God calls us out of our sin and to walk in the light of his smiling, fatherly countenance over us. As we walk in accordance with him and his righteousness, we walk as we were designed to do. And so we bring 
our Father in heaven honor through our obedience. And yet again, that tension, how often do we sin and even conscientiously suppress his truth in our own unrighteousness, in our own sinfulness? We as believers feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in these times. We feel that tug of war within our own souls. We feel the discord deep within us. For though we were made to have fellowship with God, our God, when we sin, we feel out of alignment. Like a car that just keeps pulling toward one side of the road over and over and over again. Instead of driving straight forward along the road as it was designed to do. Well, friends, the comfort of 1 John 2 verse 1 is that we ourselves as believers, as those who are in Christ, who have trusted Christ for our salvation, even when we sin, we are not left without an answer, an answer to our sin. Rather, as 1 John tells us and proclaims to us, we have one who is holy, without sin, perfect in all of his ways, who speaks over us in our defense. You, child of God, you have an advocate in Christ Jesus, one who has stood with you, not just over you, but right there by your side, who comes over to you and stands in unison with you, covering you and any ounce of shame that you feel over your sin as you confess it to God, your Father. After all, Christ is not merely our own personal Savior, our covering or propitiation for sin in our relationship with God our Father, but he himself is the only propitiation for the world. He's the only way that anyone can be made right with God. There is no other name given among men, in fact, by which we must be saved. Salvation from our sin, covering from the shame of sin dealt to us and the shame that is done by us as a direct direct result of our own sin. Even an absolution from the guilt of sins that we've committed are in Christ alone. And yet in that same breath, John continues to instruct us that we must not become complacent in our faith. We must continue not sinning that grace may abound. Rather, we are called as believers to live in the balance, knowing both God's holiness and our unworthiness, and yet also Christ's righteousness given to us in his own fulfillment of the law, his own substitutionary death attributed to us. Therefore, leaving us in a place of confidence before him. And so as we come to know both God and our own selves more accurately, God as our Savior and ourselves as sinners in need of sovereign mercy, in the light of the gospel of grace, we will desire all the more to keep and to safeguard what God commands of us. For if we go on living in such a way that is contrary to the word of God, we will find ourselves doubting his nature his ability to deliver us, and even his love toward us. But if we stand before him with both an honest understanding of our sin, met by perfect grace, achieved for us, over us, and given to us, 
we will seek all the more to abide in this truth. What is that truth? It's that though we are far more sinful than we will ever realize, we are also far more loved than we will ever know. And so friends, for this reason, we can and we should take heart and so find ourselves resting in the ease that the gospel delivers to us before God Almighty. For as Christ told his disciples, even including John, who wrote this letter during his earthly ministry, his yoke is indeed easy and his burden is light. And his law is one that is marked by love, love for both God and also love for our neighbor. And yet Christ in John 13, 34 through 35 gave a new commandment of sorts, one that is rooted in him as the savior of his own that binds all who are in Christ into the family of God. And that command is the command to love one another, just as Christ loved us. And so by this brotherly and sisterly love, so the whole world will know that we indeed are his disciples if we have love for one another. For just as the darkness of our own sin cannot dwell together with the light, so hatred of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ cannot coexist with a genuine love for God as it is practiced before others in the church. For in the words of the late pastor John Stott, the proof of love is loyalty. And so friends, my desire is that we would know this truth, that God above all is loyal to us. And what a scandalous thought. The God who made the heavens and the earth would choose to be loyal to us who are so unworthy, who have bossed up that relationship with him. And yet, nonetheless, we as believers in Christ have a sacrifice for sin. We have in Christ forgiveness from the penalty of sin. We have in Christ a knowledge of God. And we have in Christ victory over the reign of sin in our own individual lives by his perfect grace that is poured out over us. And so rightfully so, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said to believers, get rid of the idea that God is against you. For it is God who appointed the Son to this particular task of advocacy. It is God himself who gave Christ that office. Our high priest was never self-appointed. So we can rest in this truth. Because, beloved, we can realize and rest in the fact that Jesus himself is accepted by God as our advocate. For he is, by name, here in First John, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the just, the perfect and only atoning sacrifice for sin. And so in light of such a glorious confession of truth, I would invite us to hear again the marvelous words of 1 John 2, verses 12 through 13, the first half of that confession. John says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. <clears throat> what comfort is 
given to us by God himself here in this very passage in such a very knowable way. See, just as this letter was written to the church as a whole from the infants there as members of the body of Christ, uh, by virtue of the covenant of grace, from the smallest of those members, from the infants all the way up to those who are most experienced in life, this gospel truth rings clear to young and old alike that God saves sinners. See, even the smallest of children of believers, members of Christ's church, can hear the gospel and know the simple truth that God forgives sin for his namesake. And so John addresses it here, that even little children can know that their sins are forgiven as such, as they fall upon the mercies of Christ. Even so, those who are most experienced in the faith, those who have long known God himself, his characteristics, and who he is, to be who he said he is, they have known him. And they've known him to be faithful, for he has proven through countless trials and tribulations that they themselves have experienced um, that they will indeed one day see him face to face. And that God himself will always prove true. They've known him to be as such. that He is forever worthy of trust and commendation. But yet. John not only writes to those who were the youngest and those who were the most experienced, but also those who were yet still young in the faith, those who were yet still maturing in their faith in Christ, having experienced in many ways the weight of sin and yet also the wonderful relief of the gospel, the gospel which frees us to know Christ as the victor over Satan, sin, and death. And so again, John writes here in these verses, 12 and 13, to these Folks, that Christ, Christ is knowable. And so he repeats himself by emphasizing this same truth using slightly different verbiage. He says in verses 13 through 14 on the back half of that uh, couplet of sorts, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so family of God, my encouragement to each one of us in this same way is that we must be rooted in our identity in Christ. Like little children, we are to know him to be the one who forgives us. Like fathers and mothers, we are to know him and seek to know him all the more fully, even as we advance in years and life experience. And yet, like young men and women, we are to never forget that through Christ and Christ alone, we will overcome the power of sin that we face on a daily basis. We will be made strong when the word of God abides in us and our love for him saturates our whole heart all the more. And so this brings us to the final stretch of our passage this very morning. Uh, To use another illustration, it's like hiking up to the top of a mountain and looking out upon the grandiose vision 
of creation all laid out before our very eyes. Just like climbing up a mountain and experiencing this awe and wonder before us. Just like in this passage here where we've come to this point of recognizing the beauty of Christ as our advocate and we've been commanded to so love accordingly and to realize this truth that we are forever rooted in Christ in this relationship with God, our loving Father. It is here now that we begin our descent down that mountain, back to where we started. Only this time, we do so in view of the hurdles that will be faced along the way. And so we'll notice here as we continue to read on in 1 John 2, not only this crescendo building up to this point, but now a decrescendo, a coming back down of sorts. And with this, we kind of fall back upon the mirrored side of this passage. Again, we started off with this idea of Christ as our advocate, moving into this command of love, moving into this moment of our identity in verses 12 through 14. And now we're backtracking through this different kind of command, a command in regard to the world. And then and basically capping things off with this warning against Antichrist, those who would oppose Christ and stand in opposition to God himself. So with that in mind, read with me uh, these words from 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, as we begin that proverbial climb back down from the mountain, so to speak, uh, as we find ourselves on the back end of this passage, I think it's important to realize the juxtaposition, a very intentional juxtaposition that John has laid out right before us. Again, to reiterate this, in contrast uh, to the love of God, which we saw in the beginning of chapter 2, followed by our love for one another as God's family, John now is addressing two very major things that stand in opposition to our love for God and our love for one another. Namely, it's a love for the world in contrast to our love for one another. And the primary figures whom John calls antichrists, plural, who stand in opposition to Christ himself. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. What in the world does John mean by the word world? Well, cheesy jokes aside, you can probably imagine that John is not here referring to the world order, which God set forth in the beginning, nor the world's people uh, to whom he sent his only son. Nor does John mean the material world itself, which God created. Rather, John explains what he means in verse 16. He says, essentially, that all that is in the world relating to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which, collectively speaking, are not from the Father, but are of the world order, or disorder, truly, stands in opposition to him. And that's what John means when he says that word, world. All that stands in opposition to God. And this opposition started, when you really think about it, 
all the way back in the very Garden of Eden, when the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, to rebel against the Lord God who made them and had covenanted with them. The very same one who gave them life on the condition that they would simply obey his command. And yet since the fall, since that hour when mankind fell into sin and chose disobedience and death over obedience and life, God has nevertheless sought to pursue his people, even in light of their disavowing themselves of his rightful reign as king. And yet, since that time, the world has been in disarray, seeming to unravel before our very eyes, being shaken apart by all of the various follies of sin, sin whose way only leads all of its followers to death. We only need to look around at the world around us to see the effects of such sinful behavior. I mean, all of us see it on a daily basis. This world in which the law of God is not heeded. A world, a fallen world at that, in which injustice of all sorts just seems to abound. Restrained only by God's common grace to all of his people. And yet, God's ordained family and societal structures, even here in this world, um, are not being maintained in the midst of the chaotic distress, which is slowly taking its toll on these things. And yet, he hasn't left us, left us without an answer. See, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Those who had no hope of keeping the law in and of themselves. See, where we ourselves could not uphold the personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that the law of God requires of us, Christ himself fulfilled every last letter of the law in himself. And by his substitutionary death upon the cross, fulfilling the demands of the law that we ourselves incurred in our place, rescuing us from its eternal demands, and so attributing to us his perfect obedience. And so in rising from the dead and giving us life in his name, in his ascension on high, Christ himself, as king over the earth, has commenced the last and final hour. An hour which John even refers to here, an hour in which the domain of darkness will, in fact, meet its end, and the light of the gospel will expand to the furthest of distant shores. We ourselves are yet, just like those to whom the Apostle Paul, or rather John, wrote in the first century AD, still in this very last hour. The world, along with its unraveling disarray, is yet still on its sin-filled trajectory. Whereas we, as the church, have been brought into a place of going counter to that trajectory. We, as believers across the world, have been transferred into Christ's spiritual kingdom of grace. And so now we run inconsistently with that world 
hence the tension we face within it. We are set on a different course entirely, one whose way is not death, but life, one whose way is not destruction, but peace. And so when John says here that we are not to love the world, we are not called ourselves to shut ourselves off from life outside of our front door and to become hermits of sorts. We are not called to asceticism or to neglect the cares of this life and to become brains on a stick, so to speak, thinkers without any course of action. We are not called to be passive in our biblically-based political influence even, or societal activities that influence culture around us. Rather, we are to reject the organized false religion of mankind that stands diametrically opposed to God, our God. We are to see, in a very active sense, the folly of a life that is independent of our Lord, a life that is based upon this world and this life only, that is driven by a spirit of rebellion as such for what it really is. Rebellion. Falsity. Something that is not worth chasing after. And so in contrast, we are to properly stand with hope. A hope that surpasses the weight of any present afflictions that we now face. For the last hour that John spoke of was already upon his readers there in the first century, and it is still yet upon us. And though from the time of the apostles and the early church in the first century, there had already been multitudes of antichrists, plural, men who stood in antithesis to Christ and his church, and there certainly are still many more abounding around us, we must fold, hold fast hope for this present darkness, just as it was in the time of this writing, is yet still indeed wasting away. So church, know that there will be conflict, especially as we, the church in America, continue to increasingly face antagonism. Antagonism by those whose rule of law is based upon self, not God. But church, we must not lose heart because this sort of thinking devoid of the hope of the gospel will only lead us to a depressive state of mind. But that is not what the gospel leaves us with. The gospel leaves us with this glorious fact that Christ is already king, ruling and reigning over us, already seated on the throne, already making all things new. And so though, do, so though we do not uh, um, maybe see the way forward at times, we can continue on uh, knowing that the Lord will continue to use every last minute that we find ourselves in during this quote-unquote last hour in the grand scheme of his redemptive narrative uh, in order to see the, ch the church through to victory. See, at the last, the church of Jesus Christ will stand victorious, though bruised and beaten up by opposition in this world. We will prove to be overcomers. 
For as we continue to abide in Christ, come whatever adversity will and does stand up against us, as we can continue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and become more and more known by our love for one another here within our own community, we will see the gospel flourish and advance in ways which we ourselves here at Christ's covenant cannot yet fully imagine. And so friends, as we conclude, my prayer for us as we go about our weeks and the days ahead is that we would not lose heart. For just uh, as Jesus encouraged his disciples right before his crucifixion, following uh, and followed by his resurrection from the dead, he said these words that are just as applicable to us. He said this in the Gospel of John. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And we ourselves, friends, are in union with Jesus. See, in his overcoming the world, we share in that overcoming. And so too, so we may, uh, my prayer rather is that we may too continue to have confidence, knowing our Lord Jesus, knowing that he is yet still in control. May we hold fast to the assurance of his advocacy over us. For even when our hearts condemn us as we sin, and we feel the weight of that sin within us as we confess it unto God, rightfully so, may we know and rest in this truth that God still remains greater than our hearts and that he knows everything. So let that be reason enough for us not to shrink back from him. Rather, let us await with hope And a brave anticipation that when Christ returns in all of his glory, he will make all things right once again. With that gospel truth in mind, church, let's come before him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, though in this world we certainly do face trials and tribulations of various kinds, that we do, even in this very hour, this very time, and our history, even within our own nation, which we love, we find ourselves in, uh, in opposition with a culture that just seems to continue to um, uh, see Christians as being enemies. Would we find ourselves to be <clears throat> never... Nevertheless, just in this place of, of, of hope, hope that seems maybe even a little uh, without reason, and rightfully so. For if left to our own uh, causes, our own strength even, we would be without hope in this world. But God, we thank you that you are with us. That even, O Christ, before you left, you promised your disciples and those who would follow that you will be with us to the very end of the age. And we know, Father, that Christ has given the Holy Spirit to us. That he indwells us. That he holds us fast. And will continue to just strengthen us day by day. Even as our outward selves waste away. We can hold on to the fact 
and this truth really that um, we are being renewed in the inner man daily. And so we take heart. We take heart that we have been forgiven, that we have known you, and that through Christ and his victory, we will one day overcome. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these wonderful truths that we have to meditate upon, and that for as simple as they might seem to appear, they are truly pastoral, and they are truths that are meant to comfort us, and they already have comforted the church over the last 2,000 years, and will continue to comfort the church until the very end of the age. So Jesus, we ask that as we go about our week ahead of us, whatever might be that comes our way, that we would take heart and that we would go forth as those who love you, who are called according to your name to love the world, to love these people that you have made in your image and likeness. And to so serve this very world as those who primarily love you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, church, I want to leave you with a benediction this very morning uh, as we go about our separate ways. Uh, And so this uh, uh, benediction, this good word spoken over you in love, uh, comes to us from God's own word in the book of Jude. And so I would ask you to receive this benediction, this good word for you this very morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, church, go in his peace. Look forward to seeing you very soon. Take care.